Hello and welcome to episode 81 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. I'm delighted that this week's episode was researched and written by a friend of the show, Chris Wood. Thanks again, Chris. Another awesome job. Before we begin, a huge thank you to my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new supporters. That's C. Cunningham, Claire, Alan Davis and Christopher Woodruff. Welcome to our group and I hope you enjoy the bonus episodes and other exclusive content. In fact, if you get a moment, why not head to my website, uktruecrime.com and check out my latest blog on that moment somebody's found guilty. Our story today is from 2009, the year that saw the final closures of the high street favourite Woolworths across the UK. This brought to an end 100 years of the retail chain and I think we'll all agree, those of us who grew up with it, that we still miss it, particularly their pick and mix sweets. And more than 27,000 jobs were lost as its 813 stores gradually ceased trading. As true crime fans, you will recall the case of Karen Matthews. And this was the year that Matthews and Michael Donovan were sentenced to eight years in prison for the kidnap of her daughter, Shannon Matthews. They held the poor girl captive in Donovan's flat in Dewsbury as a grand plan to claim £50,000 for her safe return after reporting her missing to police. What a truly awful plan this was, really highlighting the fact that some people will literally do anything for money. In March, Comic Relief raised a total of £57 million, eclipsing the previous record set in 2007. Go Lenny! And in April, cases of swine flu were confirmed in England, spreading mass panic and hysteria in many quarters. Several deaths were sadly recorded as a result of the virus. In the summer of 2009, there was sad news as Harry Patch, the last British survivor of World War I, died. He was 111. It's far too easy for us to be wrapped up in the often tiny problems and issues we immerse ourselves in on a daily basis. But could you imagine having no choice but to fight in those trenches in those conditions? No, me neither. And finally, December saw England's latest dire attempt to host the World Cup gather pace. This was the 2018 edition. Russia, as you know, is about to host it in the next couple of weeks. But we shouldn't be bitter, as no doubt like every World Cup and Olympics, we have to accept that the best bid won. And all this talk of bribery is surely incorrect. I mean, look at the next one in Qatar. Could there be a more suitable venue? What were you doing in 2009? This was a year when I had major upheaval in my life and I spent most of my time enjoying myself in amazing Las Vegas. So a lot of the music around at the time is very emotive for me. The top selling single in the UK this year was Lady Gaga with Poker Face, followed by Black Eyed Peas with I Got A Feeling. So on to today's story. London, as we know, has some incredibly affluent areas and today's case comes from one of those, New Bond Street. The street has even recently been named as the fourth most expensive shopping street in the world. Stores like Mulberry, Burberry and Armani ensure that there aren't too many bargains to be had in this area. On the 6th of August 2009, two men decided they didn't just want a bargain, but they were hell-bent on not paying a single penny for the items they wanted from a store called Graf Diamonds. 
The boutique was founded in London in 1960 by billionaire Lawrence Graff. It has worldwide appeal with stores in all parts of the globe, including New York, Tokyo, Las Vegas and Monte Carlo. No doubt like me, along with Poundland, this store is a staple of your monthly shopping. Graff is a playground for the wealthy, and due to the values of the stock they contain, they will often be at the top of the list for those that are selecting targets for more dubious and sinister activities. It was 4.40pm on the afternoon of the 6th of August, just a normal summer's day when two sharply dressed men, one white and one black man, entered the shop. There was of course nothing untoward about this, but things would quickly take a terrifying and unexpected turn. One of the men asked shop assistant Petra Enar if they could see a two-carat gold ring that was displayed in the window. As Petra diligently went to retrieve it for the men, they both suddenly produced handguns and warned the staff to get down on the floor or they'd all be shot. As the raiders continued to threaten terrified staff, they made no efforts to conceal their faces from the CCTV cameras that surveyed the premises. One of the men was wearing leather gloves, a strange choice on a warm midsummer's day, but the store security allowed entry nonetheless, later passing it off as nothing more than the example of the eccentric and the flamboyant behaviour of the super wealthy clients they encountered day after day. Petra, who had only worked in the store for a matter of months at this time, was forced at gunpoint to empty the store's display cabinets. 43 rings, bracelets, necklaces and watches were all taken during the raid. One necklace alone was later reported to be worth a staggering £3.5 million, and in total the stolen haul was valued at over £40 million. Incredible figures, aren't they? Petra was told several times that if she did not do as the men asked, she would be killed. Perhaps even more worryingly for Petra, if that was possible, one of the men then dragged her outside, still at gunpoint, to the getaway car as a hostage. The robbers did, however, quickly release her outside the store, and to create further confusion, one of the men fired a shot into the air before escaping the scene in the blue BMW. Being 2009, this was all caught on camera as an onlooker filmed it all on their mobile phone. As the men fled the scene in their getaway car, no doubt feeling that their audacious bid was on track for a successful and fruitful conclusion, little did they know that within the BMW, they would inadvertently leave police with a direct clue which led straight back to them. In the haste to escape the scene, they collided with a black cab. As the collision occurred, the black man jumped from the BMW and shot three times at a man called Robert French. Robert had been enjoying a pint of beer outside a nearby pub and believing the thieves to be hit-and-run drivers, he had bravely given chase on foot. A brave man indeed, but these actions surely reveal a complete disregard for human life. It was only through luck that this episode is not describing another murder case. The raiders had placed several hire cars in areas that they knew the police would be trying to get to in response to the raid. These acted as blockades and assisted their escape. The BMW was then abandoned in nearby Dover Street and once more, in an effort to create panic during the switch of vehicles, one of the men fired a second shot, this time straight into the ground. 
This worked and helped give the men valuable time to switch into the second vehicle, this time a silver Mercedes. This car too, though, was soon abandoned and for a final time switched once more in Farm Street, not far from Hyde Park. Looking at the raid, on the surface it appeared that police had a valuable range of information and evidence. They knew they were looking for several suspects, after all. Aside from the two men that had actually carried out the robbery, police knew there were at least three getaway drivers and a mystery biker who had taken part in the raid. Also of major significance was an item found in the BMW, the one which had been quickly abandoned after the collision with the back taxi. In their haste to escape the car, they forgot to take a small pay-as-you-go mobile phone, which had become wedged between the driver's seat and handbrake. Surely this fatal mistake was one of the more obvious and simple to avoid, but it provided police, as you'd expect, with a major breakthrough. The phone had stored on it a host of anonymous numbers, which would lead police to a range of suspects. It appeared that the men had perhaps planned the robbery a couple of days earlier than when they actually did carry out the heist. Don't you love that word? Heist. CCTV footage from Tuesday the 4th of August appeared to show two men arrive at the store dressed in similar suits to those worn on the day of the attack and they could be seen staring intently into the shop. Detectives believe this was intended to be the day of the raid but something caused them to delay possibly members of the public, or perhaps the items they particularly wanted were not visible in the shop window. It was also suggested that a random police patrol car had passed through the street several times, potentially forcing the offenders to think twice and to delay their plans. DCI Pam Mace, who led the hunt for the men, said, The robbers were primed and ready to go, but something has clearly spooked them and forced them to delay the robbery. Whatever the reasons for the abandonment of the plans, it was clear that their drive and will to persist with the robbery overcame any worries they may have felt. DC Mace and her team stated that the men knew exactly what they were looking for and we suspect they already had a market for the jewels. Inevitably, these items are highly portable, which makes it easier for them to be transported abroad. The suspect's details and descriptions were circulated to all ports and airports, but police feared that the men may already have left the country. As mentioned earlier, the two men entering Graf Diamonds showed no inclination to protect their identities, and CCTV had captured good images of them. This was strange, right? We probably all imagine that one of the first things that would-be robbers would consider is how they'll keep their identity secure. But as it turned out, these two men had indeed done just that. Police noticed through extensive CCTV footage that the men's appearance had substantially altered from before the raid to when the same men appeared on Graf's own CCTV footage. CCTV found on cameras in Covent Garden revealed that the two men, whoever they were, had visited the Charles Fox makeup studio. Inquiries made with the studio led to the police learning that the men's intention was to have latex masks made up for them, as they were making a pop music video. The two men had spent over four hours with the professional makeup artists, who used wigs and toners and latex prosthetics to disguise them. Their hair colour and even skin tone was transformed during a four-hour session, 
which cost around £450. Small change when you consider how much they were hoping to steal from graphs. The knowledge that the men used the studio led to forensic experts seizing several items such as hairbrushes, gowns and even the banknotes that they paid with. Insurers of the jewellers had by this point put up a £1 million reward to try and coax out any information on the whereabouts of the perpetrators. Police hoped that such a sizeable sum may even help to encourage any associates of the gang to come forward with information. Fortunately though, the police would not have to wait too much longer before arrests would be made. They'd been painstakingly working their way through the mobile phone found in the BMW getaway car and the anonymous numbers held within it. Eventually, they were led to Ethiopian-born Aman Kasayi, 25, of Battersea, South London. When he was arrested by officers of the flying squad, he told them, you don't have to do this, nobody got hurt. If there was ever a lack of insight into someone's actions, surely this was it. At the time of the robbery, Kasaye, he was living with his parents on police bail. Police discovered a set of passport photos in his room, which suggested he'd been ready to flee the country using a false passport. And they also discovered some modified blank pistol cartridges, the very type used in the raid. With previous convictions for drug offences, he had a reputation locally as someone that craved the trappings of wealth and was not too bothered how he achieved this. A little like Piers Morgan, I guess. Police had been able to track Kasaye's movements and concluded that he was the ringleader of those involved. He'd been a media studies student at St Mary's University College in Twickenham, West London, before dropping out, and had used several phones bought in the lead-up to the robbery, and police, through this, were able to trace the members of the gang that Kasaye had seemingly put together for the raid. <laughs> I, don't, I think it's fair to say this wasn't the A-team. But isn't that always the way when we hear about the raiders? I think every armed robbery I hear about, it sounds like the guys are amateurs. On the 20th of August, Craig Calderwood, 26, and of no fixed abode, was arrested alongside Salomon Bayene, who was 24 and living in London. A day later, Clinton Mogg, a 42-year-old of Bournemouth on the south coast, was also charged and all were remanded in custody. Thomas Thomas, aged 43, what a name. His parents must have disliked him from the moment he arrived on this planet. He was the oldest of those arrested. Incidentally, police found him hiding up a tree in his neighbour's back garden, as you do, and it was claimed that he'd been one of the blocking drivers who helped the gang escape. Other charges brought against the individuals included attempted murder, possessing firearms, using a handgun to resist arrest, and conspiracy to commit robbery. A trial was set for April 2010 at Woolwich Crown Court in South London. The jury, made up of eight women and three men, would hear every detail of the case, including some of the more fanciful aspects the gang's defence would put forward. Courtney Griffiths QC, defending, alleged that the robbery was an inside job of which store manager Martin Leggett was implicated. But during the robbery itself, the court heard that Leggett had laid spread eagle on the floor with a gun pointed at his head as the two men ransacked the store. We can only imagine the dread that he must have felt at that point, and it must have been utterly terrifying. 
than to stand in court and have accusations levelled at him that he was in some way part of the robbery must have been a pretty unpleasant experience. Indeed, during his cross-examination, he retorted, saying, I'm fascinated to hear evidence of your conspiracy theories, which I find totally unfair. The robbery in 2009 was not the first time that graphs had been the target of such a raid. In 2003, a £23 million raid was attempted on the same Bond Street store, and as well they endured a £20 million loss in 2007, when its Sloan Street store was robbed by two gunmen. Griffiths concluded that this appears to be reoccurring bad luck for Mr Graff, robbed all the time, as if to emphasise that such frequency must indicate a level of inside knowledge for this to keep on happening. Martin Leggett ironically thanked the barrister for his sympathy. I'd best not get into my thoughts on how defence barristers sometimes act, except to say that whatever the legal constraints, which I understand, we do still all have choices on how we choose to behave. As we hear so often, the trauma of the victims having to replay events in the daunting arena of a Crown Court is the most harrowing experience. Petra Enar, the shop assistant, who had a gun thrust into her face as she loaded a plastic bag full of glittering jewels for the robbers, told the court of her fear that day. I didn't want to make a wrong move, she said. It was life or death, and I was absolutely terrified. She'd identified Kasei as the gang member that had carried out this act. The two-minute raid had seen the gang escape with a huge value of goods, making it Britain's second biggest robbery, only behind the Securitas Depot robbery of 2006, which saw just over £53 million of cash stolen. As we know, two men were physically responsible for committing the robbery itself, with Kasaye identified as one, Craig Calderwood then admitted that he was the other man involved, but claimed he was forced into it due to threats made to both him and his family. Police saw this as pretty likely. They believed all along that the entire robbery was underpinned by a type of criminal mastermind, or a Mr Big character, who may have meted out such threats to anyone who proved difficult in the recruitment process. As for the identity of Mr Big, it was claimed that he may have been the masked biker that Kasei was spotted handing over the bag of jewels to during his escape. His identity may have been protected, but Kasei and his co-accused did not have that luxury. Prosecutor Philip Bennett claimed that Kasei had told Petra Erna, you are going to help us open windows, before she started to fill the bag with the jewels. He centred on the fear that she had felt during the raid, and the two men had come very prepared to use the weapons they carried. Bennett's also shed light on the disguise process that the men had tried at the makeup studio. Kasai and Calderwood had allegedly told the studio that they wished to be aged 60 years old for their music video. Latex and grease paint were then applied to the men, but Calderwood, he was a little bit vain, and he was not happy with the results, telling the makeup artist, It's a bit much. My grandfather's older than this. He was a minor, and he doesn't look as bad as this. They then pulled off the latex and settled on using grease paint and powder to create ageing lines. Oh dear. (laughs) Oh dear. On Friday the 25th of June, the jury had reached a verdict on Aman Kasai following the nine-week trial. 
he was found guilty of kidnapping, possessing a firearm and conspiracy to rob. Upon hearing the verdict, he showed no emotion, simply scratching his head and giving a thumbs up to his supporters in the public gallery. As we've said already, the notion that he was the driving force behind the robbery was doubted by people that knew him. A neighbour would later tell reporters that when we heard he was supposedly the ringleader of this raid, we just laughed because it seemed so far-fetched. He wasn't some kind of criminal mastermind. He was still living with his mum. On the 6th of August 2010, Kasai, Bayene, Mog and our friend Thomas Thomas were handed their sentences. Kasai, 23 years in prison, 16 years for conspiracy to rob, 5 years possessing a firearm and a further 2 years for kidnap. The other men were jailed for 16 years for conspiracy to rob. It was revealed that Bayene was second in command and they'd only just been released from jail a month before the robbery, but still had time to become a key organiser of the plot. Bayeni had bought the mobile phones used by the gang, and also hired a Ford Transit van used to block a police call following the 999. Bayeni was another one that liked to portray this macho persona, but was, like Kaseye, still living at home with his mum and dad. Oh dear. Clinton Mogg was the getaway driver of the silver Mercedes. Following his arrest, his father had said that his son was not clever enough to be part of such a complex plot. Nice. When police arrested him, he provided them with a false letter from Abbey Estate agents, which claimed he'd been at an interview in Bournemouth on August 6th. His mistake was that the police wanted to question him about his involvement two days earlier in the dry run of the robbery, and had not actually asked him about movements on the later date. You know, maybe his dad was right about him after all. And on to Thomas Thomas. It's hard to know quite what to say, but he was useful to the raid, as he owned a heavy goods vehicle licence, and he duly used this to hire a seven and a half tonne box lorry to act as a blocking vehicle. He'd only minor convictions, despite having mixed in criminal circles for three decades. Maybe this was some long overdue justice. Interestingly, jurors failed to reach a decision on Calderwood and a retrial was ordered. But in March 2011, he too was convicted and imprisoned for a total of 21 years, 16 for the robbery and 5 for possession of a firearm. To Calderwood's credit, he did at least appear to recognise the trauma he had inflicted upon those in the Graf store on that August afternoon. In a letter he wrote from the Slammer, he claimed, I'm truly sorry for the crime I committed. I apologise to the staff for the traumatic and scary ordeal I must have put them through. But as ever with these things, it's always difficult, if not impossible, to know just how genuine words are like that from the perpetrators. Are they merely sorry they were caught? And had they managed to escape undetected with a valuable loot, would they have been likely to hand themselves into police or just soak up the extravagant lifestyle funded by their criminal activities? And what of the diamonds and jewels that were stolen? One expert from the Art Loss Register's recovery unit claimed they would have been flown out of the country within hours of the robbery, saying, A flight would have been set up and they'd have been flown away straight away. 
it will then pass through a number of hands very quickly to disassociate itself with the people who carried out the initial robbery. It would be almost impossible to see them on the open market, as each diamond has an individual code lasered onto it, unique to graph. This coding remains embedded within them, even if they are cut down, which would render the gems valueless if sold on the high street. However, the jewels, which have never been recovered, are believed to have been broken down, but sold at unregulated markets in Dubai and Marbella in Spain. Whatever has happened to them, there is no doubt that the main players involved in the raid are certainly not reaping any reward for their efforts that day. Instead, they are continuing their fully deserved and lengthy jail sentences, maybe still daydreaming of the lifestyle they could have been leading. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Although on the surface the robbery seemed complex, and the details suggested it was organised by experienced thieves, when you look at the details, it's clear that the people convicted were very much wannabe gangsters, operating, again, very much in the lower divisions. The so-called Mr Big didn't get collared. And this is pretty much the same in any part of life, isn't it? From sport to corporations. If as one example we look at the recent collapse of Carillion here in the UK, the Mr Bigs on the board still managed to come out of the disaster wealthy, whereas those further down the organisation suffered by losing their jobs. I guess we can understand why these wannabe gangsters were happy to take the risk, as if it had succeeded, they may not have needed to carry out another robbery for a long time, instead being able to pay other minions to do their dirty work in future. But, as Gary Vaynerchuk says, for every aspiring Instagram, there are a large number of Insta shits. And this was very much the latter. Thank you for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. For new listeners, as you can probably tell, this show is just me. With excellent help sometimes from Chris Wood. Thanks again, Chris, for doing such a great job with this episode. If you would like to listen to 15 bonus episodes and really support the show so I can continue to produce it weekly, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. You can also join in the conversation about all aspects of UK true crime at our Facebook group, where you'll be made very welcome. I'm off to watch the funniest piece of TV from this year. I'm sure you know what I mean. The Royal Wedding last week, during the sermon, watching the faces of the royals. If you haven't seen it, priceless. So until we speak again next week, Cheerio, and remember, stay classy.